one of my favourite things about museums is when you kind of walk into a museum, you go, oh, I have one of those at home, or I have one of, or 50 years ago, I saw that in my nan's kitchen, that kind of thing, because it makes you really kind of reassess and think. So, but why is that there then? Hello, and welcome to the Culture and Technology Podcast. I'm your host, Severin Matusek. What's the last thing you used your phone for? Maybe you just checked your email or scrolled through your Instagram feed and stopped at memes that make you laugh or sigh. All these photos, videos, files, memes, GIFs are digital objects. Objects that make up the digital culture we share as creators and consumers today. Given the high speed of digital culture production today, it's easy to forget that the internet we know today has only been around for around 30 years and the iPhone for fewer than 15. In very little time, digital objects have not only changed how we communicate and find information, they have become our interfaces for reality, the screens through which we share and experience the world. So that makes me wonder, in a world where our devices are constantly upgrading and getting better, how can we preserve our current digital culture for the future? In this episode of the Culture and Technology Podcast, we look at the role of museums in collecting and presenting the digital objects of today for tomorrow. Our first guest is Natalie Kane, Curator of Digital Design at London's Victoria and Albert Museum. From Vienna, we are joined by Malis Wirth, Curator of Digital Culture and Head of the Design Collection at the Museum for Applied Arts in Vienna. Working with museums like the V&A and the MAC, I believe that both Natalie and Marlies have a huge responsibility when it comes to making digital culture accessible to the public and preserving it for the future. That's why it's a pleasure to have them explore the question with us. What exactly are digital objects and why do museums collect them? Very glad to have both of you on the podcast. To start with, I'm curious, Natalie, how did you get into collecting digital objects? I've always been really interested in how we think about the sort of the future of technology uh, for the last maybe 10 years, actually. And then eventually I started curating technology and putting on exhibitions and working with people and artists and designers to kind of imagine kind of what the future of technology might be. And then eventually I started uh, researching, thinking what the legacy of it might be. So then you kind of naturally see all these complications and they don't act like other objects like paintings and sculptures and all of the other things that kind of come with more physical and analogue objects. And you suddenly realise that we're losing all of these extra facets of our digital culture, which we may not have really thought about because they become, uh, it becomes sort of more a consideration around sort of the social, the ethical, and the political, which have always been a matter of our analogue objects. I'm not saying they're different, but because it's so wide-ranging and uh, uh, distributed and networked with the the digital, that it's a a slightly different consideration that we have to think about. So I've always been really fascinated with that. So when the job with the V&A came up, a friend kind of encouraged me and said, well, you've been thinking about this for a long time with futures folks and with art folks. Well, why don't you kind of try and see how a museum can think about it? And then I went for it and I've kind of enjoyed it ever since, really. What is the definition of a digital object? You mentioned it's virtual. Do you have a, a short definition? Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I say that in the greatest respect because, that, I mean, there's a born digital, there's digital hybrid objects, which is objects which may be kind of brought to life digitally. So the Internet of Things and that kind of thing. And then there's uh, objects which, for instance, may kind of be networked or brought to life through digital 
uh, memes. Or there's actually objects which may have been born out of digital culture. So we have the object like the pussy hat, for instance, from the Women's March, which we at the VNA consider a digital object because it would never have really been brought to life in the same way had it not been that 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 design had not been passed through a, a Facebook group and the the swell of interaction from people had not come through that that Facebook group. It's we don't see it like a textile design in the sense we see it like a, an object digital culture. So digital culture is an interesting term that I would like to dig a bit deeper into because Malis, you are your role at the Museum of Applied Arts in Vienna is to be the curator of digital culture. So how what exactly do you do there and how does digital culture relate to the digital objects that Natalie just very succinctly described? In the beginning, the position that I now have was defined just as the head of design collection. But when I took it over, we were in the course of having our second uh, Vienna Biennale in the prepare, preparing that, uh, which was dealing with digitalization and that impact on culture and our society and the world economy, basically. And that's how my role was named, Curator for Digital Culture, which is a major difference, actually, for uh, head of digital collection, as um, Natalie's position position is described. So we, I, I'm not only in charge of digital objects or digital design, but uh, digital culture is a broader term. And I also uh, work and collect with, uh, with um, very analog objects still. And how it all started basically for me was when I curated an, a solo exhibition with the Austrian artist Valentin Ruri, um, titled Grand Central. And he was interested uh, in Apple stores and specifically the one in the Grand Central station in New York which was the first one, as uh, as many may know, which uh, was kind of in public space, just randomly tables with products standing there without confined being confined to a shop. You could just walk through on your way to the train and buy objects and not even go to the cashier's desk, but obviously, like it is now in every Apple store, do it via your smartphone. And that was back in 2014, I think, or 13, when that started. And the exhibition was uh, started in Mac in October 2014. And so with working with the artist on this project, I really got to talking with him about his knowledge uh, on so many other digital things that I had just kind of read about or known about, but not in a scientific or theoretical way, uh, like the blockchain and all the related cryptocurrencies, which were booming at this time. Valentin also uh, had founded a platform called Coin Temporary, together with another Austrian artist, Andy Boot, where they were selling artist editions and artworks, not only digital ones, but mostly, for the current Bitcoin price of the week they were online. And one of the objects on sale there um, is uh, was the a uh, digital object by uh, the artist Harm van den Doppel called Event Listeners, a screensaver for OS. And um, that became our first digital object that the Mac ever bought and collected. And we bought it uh, specifically with Bitcoins and it was inscribed in the blockchain. So that was a major like media deal also that we did that. We haven't done it again, I admit, but that was it made sense for that specific kind of object. I'm curious about both your positions in your respective museums. My understanding is both the Victoria and Albert Museum, as well as the Mark, they are very well-established institutions in London and in Vienna. And, you know, digital culture and digital objects are fairly new things to deal with. Um, and I understand that probably your the role of your museums in society is also to translate and to educate the large public about 
what these objects are, what digital culture is. What challenges have you encountered so far? Maybe Natalie, you start with presenting digital objects, making people understand that a GIF or a meme is something worth collecting. It's a really interesting question because, I mean, I, I work quite closely alongside my colleague, Corinna Gardner, who's the senior curator of, of Design Digital, and she's very well-versed in that. And we, we spend a lot of time trying to think through how you present something like, again, a GIF or a mobile application alongside, um, for instance, uh, Memphis School wardrobes and and all of these objects, which I think often sense to, like tends to be seen as quite unique or quite precious. And I think that the issue is, is because we, we live so often kind of alongside these objects like the iPhone that we don't tend to see them as being um, the same as like a Raphael painting, right? And it's and it's not because and it's often kind of like trying to think rethink what the museum is in some senses. And the, 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 one of the great things about museum is how it can put design in context. One of my favourite things about museums is when you kind of walk into a museum, you go, oh, I have one of those at home or I have one of, or 50 years ago, I saw that in my nan's kitchen, that kind of thing, because it makes you re, kind of reassess and think. So, but why is that there then? And like, and how you put that alongside something and go, oh, actually what that's doing is talking to me about labour or production or manufacturing or the role we have around communication or the role that we have around um, technology and the role that has in everyday life. And that's the really empowering thing about what, what you do when you put something in the in the kind of context within museum making or exhibition making. It's, it's not so much about oh, we, we collect it because we kind of, we have to, we have to really be, be really careful about what we collect. We don't collect comprehensively or, or particularly chronologically. We don't kind of collect to collect for collecting's sake. We kind of collect because you want to have a conversation around a particular object. But it is, so it is a challenge because how do you, then you have to sort of think about, okay, so how do I want to represent the experience of a 16 year old girl using Snapchat to, in, in a well, in a way that's comprehensive and emotional and social and cultural? And what are the ways we have to think about that that doesn't kind of isolate people from that experience in that sense as well? And, and it's, that's where you have to bring it back to the object and then build out rather than try to collect everything. And I think that's, that can sometimes be quite paralyzing for curators or for collections curators, especially. So it is a challenge, but I think it's quite an exciting one. Marlies, what what challenges have you encountered with presenting digital culture to the general public at your museum? So, uh, funnily enough, the general public reacted quite positively on those topics. For example, when we had Vienna Biennale in 2019 and presented the exhibition Uncanny Values, Artificial Intelligence and You. Um, but internally, some of my older colleagues, most of them are in uh, retirement right now, were a little bit astonished by my um, research project because we always have to to write those and, and discuss them with the colleagues and they were like what what's what's going on with you and I mean we were founded in 1963 as the Royal Museum of Art and Industry actually based on the example of the V&A our mothership and um, art and industry meaning that there were always contemporary ties to production and to very up and coming technologies in fact but like in the 19th hundreds and so why 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 should we do it any differently now that we live in the 21st century so it seems quite clear also for our director christoph thunhohenstein who is very progressive in this regard to rethink collecting in a way that we have to open up towards gifs emojis uh, other objects we don't own them yet but we have been dealing with those topics in lots of exhibitions and we're very happy about that because as you just said you can encounter uh, things that you might have at home or that you were uh, would ask yourself why is it in the museum um such as for example the first iphone 
which is there is just the body, but uh, um, we, we still need to talk about that, how it doesn't work, it, it's, it's in between, but it stands there, it sits there as a signifier of what it enabled, of the interface that it opened up, of the whole cultural shift that basically started with that tiny little object. And it can't be reduced to the design of its surface, but it's what lies beneath. Uh, all the development of apps, the, the foraging for of, of uh, social media, surveillance capitalism, data, consumerism, etc. So we are trying to uh, convey these topics, just like also Natalie and DVA are doing, through objects, and those can be varied and also digital, and they are not uh, in, in a kind of concurrence with the old collection, it's just different. And I think the, the question of originality or uniqueness um, it's hardly to be compared because many of our objects are for a specific elite. So we have a lot of very fine Wiener Werkstätte uh, products or uh, uh, things designed by Josef Hoffmann, Adolf Loos, the grandfathers of Vienna modernism. But uh, we always have to know that these objects, be it a chair, a cup, a vase or a desk, have been in contexts that were very elite and limited. And I think to open up to our daily lives, um, throughout uh, the history as we became a more open and equal society. I think that's also reflecting on our collection strategy. I'm very interested in that. Um, you know, you could also say the distinction between the so-called high art and low art. And also, to me, digitalization and the internet, what it has done over the last 30 or 40 years, it was a great equalizer in terms of power structures, in terms of democratic access, in terms of very broad access to millions and millions of people. So how do you think this digital culture and the digital objects are changing power structures that more people have access to creating, to distributing these artworks than before where we were still you know, caught in hierarchies of distributors, people who held the power, museums even who acted as distributors. How do you think that's changing because of digital? I mean, there are power structures, but they're just different power structures now. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it's democratized and made it better. It's just reshifted them in some ways. I mean, I, I, I hesitate to think that the internet has made it um, suddenly magically better. I think it's just it's just distributed the power in different ways. We still haven't solved the fact that there is issues of power and labour by who produces the materials that make the internet happen. For instance, it's one of those interesting conversations that we definitely should be we should be bringing. And I think this is why, why I'm, I'm always really intrigued by the idea of like when people talk about museums being these kind of producers of conversations and dialogues. It's it's the fact that museums aren't neutral places and they ever have been, particularly whether it's the, the, the kind of objects that we bring in from our past. Is I, I was asked this quite recently, actually, in a conversation, and someone said, like, oh, so how do you think digital objects can help us sort of decolonize or de, um, sort of re or bring, bring to light the politics of our, of our current kind of collections? And I still think that we should think about how the objects that we bring in can create and make, make space for the political conversations of the now, or particularly around digital culture. Because when we think about... Um, the objects that we bring in and all of the things that we we try to to, to talk about within our collections obviously an, ob an object has to do so much work in that sense I mean to give you a kind of uh, a provocation in some ways the way that we collect objects obviously when I bring an object in as a curator I have to serve a very particular role in that I can't be super super biased and be like I'm bringing this in for this very particular reason but I can present to you as much information about it for why it was collected and 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 be 
um, and present the facts in some way, but I can also bring in a series of objects to kind of create a, a kind of a conversation in some senses. An example of that, for instance, is quite recently, I collected the Amazon Echo, and shortly after I collected Kate Crawford and Ladan J. Lair's project, Anatomy of an AI. And the reason why I did that is because I wanted to present two very important conversations around digital cultural objects, which is one, Amazon Alexa, sorry, Amazon Echo, sorry, is a very difficult object to acquire for a museum because of two reasons, which is the fact that it's, a, it's essentially a black box in terms of digital preservation, because we can present to you the fact that this is a very important cultural object for this generation of, in terms of smart speakers and the fact that it's, it's, I think, one of the most sold pieces of product design, digital connectivity and virtual speakers the fact that it has so many amazing conversations around gendered voice assistance, about creativity in the home, the role that, like, the fact that people shout at it because they don't see it as being kind of part of their family. And the fact that you can't actually kind of acquire the main body of why it's important, that you can't acquire the, the, the software because Amazon won't let you. And that's a real problem for museums. And the, so we acquired that. And the second part of that acquisition, or separate kind of object, but we acquired it as well, was the Anatomy of an AI, AI project, which I think was in, was it in your show? It was in our Vienna Biennale exhibition, Uncanny Values, as well. And it's on view in the design lab. Yeah, and it's a fantastic piece of work, which is that essentially kind of gathers all of this information that Kate and Vadan uh, and their team kind of uh, acquired around the Amazon Alexa from sort of extractionist politics around the materials that kind of grace it to the um, AI that runs it, to the people involved, to the fact that how it's disposed. And it's, it kind of shines a light through this graphical language about all the things that we can't know about it if you don't have the if you don't have the thing behind the object and that's the way that institutions can kind of bring that conversation to their audiences around digital culture without um quite kind of you know to reveal it um and that's a way of sort of bringing kind of a little bit of political conversation in some sense and that's how we can be kind of aware of that as an institution maybe i couldn't agree more it's it's basically we also acquired this object the amazon echo yeah and put it on view in the design lab in the section titled Design Dilemma, especially for the reasons you already mentioned. And unfortunately, we don't own the anatomy of an AI yet. It's on loan, but also on view in this given context to actually talk about the resources and the amount of very low or even unpaid labor that we are unaware of, uh, and also the problems that are caused by uh, this object not being repairable or reusable after you discard it. I'm curious now, you both mentioned the anatomy of an AI as an, as, an, as an artwork that you collected or you loaned. I believe this is an artwork that's entirely digital. It has no physical body. Uh, so it's a piece of, of software, of code. My question is, how does it work with an object like this to actually acquire it and collect it? Are there certain editions that are being released by the artist that an, a museum can acquire? Because it can be multiplied infinite times right i mean there there is a physical type it says there's there's a newspaper there's a pdf there's a huge poster and there's a pdf okay. poster so there is physical sides to it but in terms of the that that question around digital digital works and digital objects it is difficult to acquire digital works because it throws into to question the whole idea of editions and whether i mean there's a, there's a wider conversation about whether we should be doing editions of digital works at all because it actually butts up against the idea of what the digital was about in the first place with the idea of copying i mean there's a mm -hmm. it's funny um the vna uh, it was founded by a guy called henry cole who was kind of he was the inventor of the copy so he was the guy who um took like david at like the big famous david and he copied him 
And he was like, we should be making copies of all these amazing Italian works and taking them out of Italy, one, to protect them, but to keep their legacy going and to stop them from being damaged and bring them to England and bring them elsewhere so we can study them and everyone can enjoy them. And he was the guy back in like the, hang on, I always get a 19th century. Um, I think it was the 1800s. That's how I always forget. Again, you could tell I'm not a 19th century historian. Um, and the idea was so that everyone could enjoy them. And there was, there was, but obviously now, later and respectively, they would became addition, which is, I always find quite ironic. But we did a project at the V&A called Reach, which was about the, um, the importance of digital reproductions of works to try and make them more accessible for people. Um, so I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of interested in the, the notion of copying, but I appreciate that that's not how artists make money sometimes. And that's not how it works, but it's also how the, the market can impose that pressure on, artists to have to make money through that you just have to think about um how you're going to preserve it which is a whole different conversation depending on the complexity of the work if it's a pdf it's extremely easy to to look after but if it's an algorithm or a social media platform a whole different conversation i've got a question for marlies what's the most complicated thing that you've attempted to acquire digitally it's actually the AI Mochi project that was um, produced by Process Studio for our exhibition Uncanny Values, which was done by machine learning, by a generative adversarial network, and created new emojis um, from the existing data sets. We used it as our communication design. And we got as a donation a little a Raspberry Pi where the little AI emojis run on, but it's not the actual thing. So I would like to acquire the actual thing but we are not sure yet how we can preserve and host it. That's why that hasn't happened yet. So this is an ongoing um, project, basically. And maybe on the notion of copies uh, that uh, we just uh, talked about, I think it's a major difference between, uh, say, uh, the aforementioned Raphael painting or Michelangelo's statue, maybe, and applied arts uh, in terms of collecting and the original, because also you could argue that a tonnet chair is not an original because it was mass-produced. It was one of the first objects to be mass-produced in that form. So, uh, And still, we have a huge collection of tonnet uh, furniture, and it's considered very unique and special. And maybe we can start to shift that kind of thinking onto current objects and also digital objects. I love that you mentioned that, and that brings me maybe to my final question, because I believe that often when we talk about digital or cyberspace or anything virtual, it's still being regarded as this second world that's not being taken that seriously, that's kind of like playful and, you know, and, but I completely agree with you, Marlies, that when we look at Instagram or TikTok or what hap what's happening on, on social media in, in many ways is often reflective of the larger socio-cultural economic context influences that in many ways. Um, so my question would be, it's an open-ended question. So how does technology change culture in that sense? It te technology is, technology is culture. Like it's. It so how do they influence each other? I mean, it, they can't not. I mean, well, techne comes from the Latin for knowledge and like, and the idea of or the, the, or the making of knowledge, right? And like the idea of and knowledge is ultimately culture and the making of and, and the making of culture in that sense. I mean, it, it can't not. I mean, the idea of anyone, so I get really, really frustrated, really annoyed when people think that there isn't a, like, 
that technology is ruining or diluting culture in some senses or people kind of go well oh, all these kids on tiktok they, they're not reading books and i was like not but no and it's and it's, it's why people get annoyed about or oh, they're looking at their phones all the time it's like it's I appreciate that, that, but the the reason why, when you're not looking at that, you're not looking at the issues that there are at hands around again things like abuse or various other things. But the thing that I get frustrated about is that you're missing out on so many other conversations that we really need to be addressing or talking about, and and missing out on opportunities to engage or to really figure out what those social, socio technical, socio cultural conversations that you really should be having. But yeah, technology is culture. It's 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 you're you're not understanding how the history of human culture operates or 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 functions and any anthropologist will tell you that any any ethnographer or sociologist will tell you that but I, the way that it changes and, and makes us is is reciprocal in some ways like we we create technology then technology feeds back to us and then we feed back to how technology is created it's that's just how it works but then you have to layer on things like capitalism and the way that political structures influence that so actually the technology and culture but then there's things so if you think about things like, i mean i, I re- recently last year actually i went through a period of rereading um ivan illich's work so i'm not sure i'm not sure if you know ivan illich he, he's a fantastic he's a fantastic like um writer around alternative technology structures so he wrote an amazing book called convivial tools or tools for conviviality um back in the 70s and the idea of how you can think about tools and technologies in terms of different political structures and the fact that when you create a, a kind of series of tools, they should be convivial and not dependent on a massive structure of other tools in which to, to exist. And they should be like, so when you pick up a hammer, you should need like a network of other things for it to exist. And it's, it's an analogy in some ways for like our dependence on net on Facebook and network like other kind of technologies of surveillance in order for us to exist in some sense. And it's a really interesting way to think through how we've kind of got to a point with technology where we depend so much on so many things for us to be able to exist as a human culture and he, he he's, he's an amazing educator as well he talked a lot about how you can learn so much from just having lunch together and that kind of thing he's a, he's a massive hippie he used to be a roman catholic priest and then he went into like alternative education structures but the way of reimagining ways in which our relationship to, to technology can be thought actually more through political structures than through which we think about technology as technology in some sense but it's a whole different conversation here yeah i would like uh, absolutely agree to what natalie said but uh, i want to expand a little bit on the role of design here as well because uh, in upon entering our mac design lab we claim that design shapes the world around us analog and digital but also the world around us shapes us so our things shape us and there we mean technology as well And one of the first objects we present there upon entering is by Next Nature Network, the Pyramid of Technology, uh, which basically shows a pyramid uh, of technology, not only digital, but uh, that was invented and was science fiction at the time being, but then became applied and is now unthinkable of living without in our human lives, such as electricity or airplanes or trucks or, I don't know, a table, fire, the wheel the internet and we as we climb up this pyramid these things that have been envisioned technologies for a long time are already moved on in the pyramid to being applied and uh, very much basis of our lives and every culture or society would break down if you take them away and i think uh, like yeah looking at our smartphones addiction is another kind of discussion that uh, we can also have but this is just a symptom 
of how these things are designed. And I think that will also shift through time. So to claim, to wish back for olden days where children read books because they didn't have TikTok, it's just a wrong kind of conclusion because the world changed and you can't just raise your kids nowadays with without those technologies. You just have to maybe think about how to put them in a purposeful context and how to maybe limit access to certain harmful content but it does shape our lives and um, ever more so uh, politics, actually. And that's a wrap. Our next episode is going to be a bit different, mainly because it's in German. Actor Mavi Herbiger and costume designer Aino Laberenz will discuss the relevance of theater in the age of digital technology. If you don't speak German, we have got your back. The show notes of the following episode will also be in English and we will provide a summary of the key points made in the conversation. So make sure to tune in and also the following episodes are going to be in English again. The Culture and Technology Podcast is produced by the Vienna Business Agency. The Vienna Business Agency supports Vienna's businesses, economy and creative industries and in doing so shapes the city's future. I hope that our little virtual podcast sparks some new thoughts and that you will join us for the next episode.